This afternoon we're going to take a look at Daniel chapter 11, which is sort of a, an interesting topic. And we don't have time to go through all the details, but we'll, we'll hit the high points. So why don't we go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and we'll just get started here. Father in heaven, thank you for this Sabbath day that we can come together and study the Bible. I pray that you would be with us as we dig deeper into the word of God, and may we learn some things that will be helpful to us as we prepare for the last days. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this is definitely going to be a Bible study this afternoon and not a sermon. But, um, and just out of curiosity, how many of you have studied Daniel chapter 11? Okay, good. Actually, several hands and more than this morning, so that's good. Um, Daniel 11 is probably the most detailed chapter in the book of Daniel and probably the least understood in, in the Adventist church today. Most, I mean, growing up, I think most of my classmates knew the basics of Daniel 2 and some of Daniel 7 and 8, maybe the 70 weeks of Daniel 9. But when you get past Daniel chapter 9, most Adventists that I know don't know very much about it. So actually, Daniel 10 through 12 is perhaps one of the most important parts of the book of Daniel. So we're going to take a look at that. Now, as you know, Daniel follows this pattern of repeat and enlarge with Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and um, then Daniel 10 through 12. Now, Daniel 10 through 12 is basically, you could put Daniel 10 through 12 in one chapter if you wanted to. It's, it's the same prophecy. It's um, as opposed to Daniel 2, that was the, the earliest chronological point in the book of Daniel. Then you have Daniel 7 being the next prophecy, then Daniel 8, and then finally um, Daniel 10 through 12. So just for a brief review, I think we know Daniel 2 and 7 pretty well, but I'm going to point out that in Daniel chapter 8, and for those of you who are coming and we do have handouts, I don't know... Um, so there are handouts for this. Um, Daniel chapter 8, interestingly enough, starts with the kingdom of Medo-Persia. You have the ram and the hego, and Daniel 8 spells out very clearly who the ram and the hego are. You have the ram in verse 20 being, um, with the two horns being the king of Medo and Persia, and verse 21, the rough goat, um, being the king of Grecia. And of course, Daniel chapter 8 tells us about the, this rough goat being broken up and you have four notable horns coming out of this goat. And then after that, um, we see um, the little horn which succeeds the four horns of the kingdom of Greece. Now, why am I talking about this? Daniel chapter 8 follows the same sequence of kingdoms as Daniel chapter 10 through 12. Daniel chapter 8, you just have the kingdom of Me. You start with the kingdom of Media and Persia. The kingdom of Babylon is skipped in Daniel chapter 8. And the same thing happens in Daniel chapter 10 through 12. And if you remember from your study of Bible prophecy, the reason why Babylon is skipped in Daniel chapter 8, even though Babylon was still in existence at that time, is that the prophecy of the 2300 days starts in the kingdom of Medo Persia, so God wants us to focus in on that kingdom to understand the start of that prophecy. 
Now, one thing that you're going to see in Daniel chapter 8, as well as in Daniel chapter 10 through 12, is the sequence of Medo-Persia, then Greece, then pagan Rome, then papal Rome. And part of the description helping us to understand the sequence of events is um, a host given against the daily by reason of transgression. That's Daniel chapter 8, verse 12. Um, you see the very same concept in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, where it says, Arms shall stand on his part, they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. So you have in here, in Daniel chapter 8, you have the ram, then you have the he-goat, and God tells us this is the kingdom of Media and Persia, and the kingdom of Greece. Then you have the little horn, first being pagan, then papal Rome, and you have the daily being taken away, and you have this army standing up on the part of papal Rome. So that's Daniel chapter 8. In Daniel chapter 8, it's pretty easy to understand the sequence of kingdoms, and we could do a whole study on some of the topics I just mentioned, like the daily and the abomination of desolation and all those sorts of things. Um, but it's one thing that's key to point out is understanding that the same sequence in each of these chapters and the same entities are described in very similar ways. So you have Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Pagan, then Papal Rome. You have the daily, you have the transgression of desolation. You have God's sanctuary being trodden underfoot. That's mentioned in Daniel chapter 8, and it's mentioned in Daniel chapter 11. Now, in Daniel chapter 8... We don't get a lot of detail about the kingdoms of Media and Persia or the kingdom of Greece. We're just told that the, that the ram is the, is the kingdoms of Media and Persia with the two horns. So you have the two kingdoms and then you have the rough goat being Greece with a notable horn. Then it's broken and then you have the four ones coming out of that. Now, just to keep, keep you involved. So who were the four, um, or what, what was the four notable horns? Or who's the notable horn and what's the four horns that come out in the kingdom of Greece? Okay, so as Grace is saying here, so the notable horn historically is Alexander the Great. That's pretty simple to figure out. And then you have the four horns that come out of that. That's the four generals, and I have that up here on the board. You have Lysimachus, Cassander, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Those were the four Greek generals that succeeded Alexander the Great. Now, you may ask yourself, why is that important? Well, as we're going to look at today, and I'm not going to go through all the detail of Seleucus and Ptolemy and all the battles they fought against each other and so forth, you can actually read that very nicely in Daniel and the Revelation by Uriah Smith. He has it all outlined, and, and actually, I, I've summarized some of that information in your handout, so that's sort of the high-yield Uriah Smith version of Daniel 11. Um, now, interestingly enough, I, out of curiosity, I, I went to the internet and I... On Google, I typed in Daniel 11, and there was an evangelical scholar who on the first 30 verses was nearly identical to Uriah Smith, but after verse 31, he stays with the literal interpretation of Israel and doesn't make the prophetic switch. Um, so anyway, that was kind of interesting. So the first 30 verses are pretty well accepted even by evangelical scholars as far as the history goes. Now, one thing I want to impress upon your minds, so we have the sequence of kingdoms in Daniel chapter 8, and they come back again in Daniel chapter 11, but how important is Daniel 11? And this is something that I want you to take away from this study. Well, let's go to Daniel chapter 10 first, and we'll just run through this briefly. Daniel chapter 10 through 12 is this one 
long prophecy. Daniel chapter 10 is the introduction. Daniel chapter 11 is actually the detail of the prophecy. And then basically once you get to um, the end of verse 3 of Daniel chapter 12, that's the end of that flow of thought. And then verses 4 through 13 help to summarize and put things in context. But in Daniel chapter 10, we see that something interesting is happening here. If you look at verse 1, Daniel is saying... I'll I'll go ahead and read it. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar, and the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. First of all, um, what was the vision that preceded Daniel chapter 10? So you have the 70-week prophecy explained to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, but why was the 70 weeks explained to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9? So the vision of Daniel 8.14. Daniel did not understand the vision of Daniel 8.14. And if you look at Daniel chapter 8, right after Daniel chapter 8 verse 14... Gabriel comes onto the scene and God tells Gabriel in verse 16, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So Gabriel's role, especially beginning in Daniel chapter 8, is to help Daniel understand the vision of the 2300 days and the visions that point to the end of time. And then in verse 17, so if, if... If God sends Gabriel to help Daniel understand the vision, it must be important to understand what this vision is. Now, what's interesting then is, what is it that God wants Daniel to understand about the vision of the 2300 days? Well, notice the end of verse 17. It says, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. So what is it that God wants Gabriel to understand about the 2300-day prophecy? What does God want Daniel to understand about the 2300-day prophecy based on verse 17 of Daniel 8? That is for the time of the end. Now, interestingly enough, Daniel 11 helps us to understand better what happens at the time of the end. So what happens here is at the beginning of Daniel chapter 10, notice what's happened here. Um, Daniel gets a vision in Daniel chapter 10, and now it says he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. But if you look at the end of Daniel chapter 8, it says, I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. So interestingly enough, the the vision of Daniel chapter 10 through 12 helps Daniel to fill in the gaps that he wasn't getting about the length of the 2300 days in Daniel chapter 8. Finally, when God goes through the sequence of kingdoms in Daniel chapter 11, Daniel finally understands, okay, this is what the 2300 day prophecy is all about. Before then, he didn't understand it. And so Gabriel comes in Daniel chapter 8 to help Daniel understand the vision. But by the end of Daniel chapter 8, he still doesn't understand it. Then in Daniel chapter 9, the only thing that that Daniel can handle is that 70 weeks are cut off for God's people. And Daniel gets the privilege of getting the time prophecy of when exactly the Messiah will come. But by the end of Daniel chapter 9, he still doesn't understand what's going to happen at the end of the 2300 days. So it takes this last vision in the book of Daniel for Daniel to understand the most important time prophecy of the book of Daniel. Because you could make the argument that the the book of Daniel was written for us to understand the 2300 days. And so... 
Daniel hadn't understood it yet, so God had to give him more information so that he would finally make the connection. Now, here's a couple of other points about Daniel understanding things and receiving more light from God. Daniel chapter 9 is, of course, the famous intercessory prayer where Daniel is praying on behalf of his people how they have sinned wickedly. He understands from the the law of Moses, the curses and blessings of Moses of Deuteronomy 28, that if they're unfaithful, they would um, be destroyed. And and when he hears the prophecy in Daniel 8, that's what he thinks it's about, and it actually was. But he thinks that God's people have been so wicked that they're going to stay in captivity for not 70 years, but 2,300 years. And so he has this long intercessory prayer, Daniel chapter 9. And at the end of his prayer, Gabriel shows up. And of course, Gabriel, if you read it, says that he left as soon as Daniel began the prayer. So that's very interesting. But notice, so, so God helps Daniel to understand, okay, don't worry, Daniel. It's, it really is the 70 years just like I had prophesied in the book of Jeremiah. Um, and so Daniel feels much better about that. But he still doesn't understand the 2300-day prophecy. So Daniel prays for two minutes. God gives him the answer for the 70 weeks. But notice Daniel chapter 10. Notice that in verse 2, Daniel says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. So what's Daniel doing here in Daniel chapter 10? He's fasting and praying. He's only eating food of necessity. He's not eating the... um, the desserts on the table, so to speak. So, and notice how long this goes on for. It's not two minutes like it was in Daniel chapter 9. So in Daniel chapter 9, he prays for two minutes and boom, he's got the answer of the 70 weeks. Uh, He must have been wondering, boy, if I'd prayed a year earlier, maybe God would have told me sooner. Um, But here in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel's still trying to understand, okay, what's this 2300 days all about? He prays and fasts for three full weeks And Daniel chapter 10 gives us this rare glimpse into this great controversy between Michael and Satan. And if you look further on down in Daniel chapter 10, um, starting in verse 12, we see Gabriel shows up again in verse 12. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty-one days. Now, this begs an obvious question. What if Daniel hadn't started praying this prayer? You know, would God have sent someone to help him understand? Now, here's, and here's the other part of the great controversy where the scroll gets unrolled for us as well. So obviously Satan is in on what's going on here. And he saw last time that Daniel prayed, God sent Gabriel down to help Daniel understand the 2300 days better. And now we have a beginning point for the 2300 day prophecy and and the time when the Messiah will come. So that can't make Satan very happy. So he's like, "Uh oh, Daniel's praying again to understand this vision. This can't be a good thing because this time God's going to tell him what's going to happen at the end of the prophecy. So the first time Gabriel came uncontested. But what happens here in Daniel chapter 10? Daniel chapter 10, you have a three-week struggle between Gabriel and it says here the, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, if you look at it on the surface... 
how would the prince of the kingdom of Persia keep Gabriel from talking to Daniel? Well, the prince of the kingdom of Persia would, of course, be the king of Persia, who um, God was working on to fulfill answers, Daniel's prayer. Um, but also you have to realize that what was happening here was Satan was working on the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, you ask yourself, what exactly is going on here? Well, at this point, as far as we can tell, the 2300-day prophecy has not been set in motion. And what God is waiting for is for the, the king of Persia to send out the command as he said the king of Persia would in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9. And at this point in time, it hasn't happened. And Daniel's actually praying to receive more light. But before God gives Daniel more light, he is trying to work on the heart of the king of Persia so that this 2300-day prophecy can get set in motion. And Satan knows if that, once that 2300-day prophecy gets started, it's a countdown till the end of time. And the farther he can push back the beginning of the 2300-day prophecy, the farther he can push back the ending of it. And so God actually is dependent upon Daniel to start this process. So as soon as Daniel starts fasting and praying, then Gabriel comes down, but he has to work on the king of Persia first to get the prophecy started. And once the heart of the king of Persia is turned, then God can give Daniel more light. So Gabriel withstands this prince of the kingdom of Persia for 21 days, and he wasn't able to overcome him, so finally he had, in, he had to call in help, and he called in none other than Michael. Of course, Michael being Christ. So one, as I've studied Daniel chapter 10 and 11 and so forth, I've wondered what would have happened to Dan, if Daniel had stopped fasting and praying after two weeks. I mean, that would seem like a reasonable time to fast and pray. You know, you want to find out what's going to happen at the end of this prophecy, so I'm going to fast and pray for two weeks. Two weeks comes and goes, okay, I'm done. Let's go back to the pleasant bread and business as usual. What would have happened? Well, God may not have been able to answer Daniel's prayer, but Daniel was persistent, and because of his persistence, Michael came down, Jesus, and actually turned the tide, and then he was able to give Daniel more light. And, and that's a lesson for us. This is a practical application in this study. I always like to make practical applications. Um, we need to keep praying for the things that God has promised so that God can actually work. He's actually dependent on us. And if we lose our persistence in praying for things at the end, like the latter rain, which will empower us to give the message to the world, then he'll have to keep waiting until we actually have the persistence in praying for that. So Daniel's a good example. In Daniel chapter 9, he just prays for two minutes and God answers his prayer. And sometimes we get those two-minute answers. But sometimes it takes a three-week prayer of persistence before God can work. Now notice what happens. Now that Christ has turned to the heart of the king of Persia, notice verse 14. Gabriel tells Daniel, Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. So now that the tide is turned and the heart of the king of Persia is ready to do God's bidding, 
Now God can tell Daniel what's going to happen in the latter days. So if you look at Daniel chapter 11, the first 30 verses basically take you from the time of Persia, the time in which Daniel was living at that time, in verse 1, all the way down to verse 30 to the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 A.D. And then you have verses 31 through 45, which take you from 508 A.D. to the close of probation in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. So I guess the question would be, based on what God tells Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, what's the most important part of Daniel 11? Is it the first 30 verses or the last 20 or 15? Obviously, it's the last 15 verses in getting into Daniel chapter 12 where we get into the details of what happens in the latter days. Now remember, in Daniel chapter 8, what God wanted Daniel to understand was that the vision was for the time of the end. And Daniel chapter 11, all it's really doing is it's setting the table for us to understand the particulars of the time of the end. And the sequence of the kingdoms are the same in Daniel chapter 11, chapter 11 as they are in Daniel 2 and 7. And especially Daniel 8 and 11 are parallel because they, they remove Babylon as, as, um, the, as a kingdom because you start with Medo-Persia, and that's the kingdom where the 2300-day prophecy starts. So God wants you to realize that, yeah, Babylon was the head of gold, but it was in Medo-Persia that the, the prophecy of the 2300 days started. So that's why Daniel 8 and Daniel 11 don't have the kingdom of Babylon. So, with that said, I hope, with that introduction, especially looking at Daniel chapter 10, I hope that you see that there is this cosmic struggle where Satan did everything he could to keep this information from being given to Daniel. Because Satan saw that the last time Daniel prayed to receive more light, Daniel got the prophecy that predicted the coming of the Messiah. And so Satan knows this time, if, if God gives Daniel more information, he's probably going to give him more information about after the 2300 days, and that's not good for Satan. And sure enough, that's what happened. So it was Daniel's persistence in prayer that enabled God to give Daniel more information. And specifically, the purpose of this vision was to help Daniel understand what should befall God's people in the latter days. So with that said, we'll look at Daniel 11. Daniel chapter 11, if you look at your handout, and I'm really not going to go into all the detail here. It really is incredible, the detail that God goes into, the, the kingdoms that he describes. And in verse 2, it says, There shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer. And that fourth was Xerxes from 486 to 464. And then after that, in verse 3, it says, A mighty king shall stand up. That's Alexander the Great. And then in verse 4, it says, When he shall stand up, that's Alexander, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided towards the four winds of heaven. And remember, Daniel chapter 8, remember you had the notable horn and it's broken up into four horns. So we have the very same sequence here. But in Daniel chapter 11, we go into microscopic detail of who these people are. Now, just to give you a brief outline of who some of these people are and, and the details in the handout, and I'm not going to go into all that. But what happens is you have Alexander, his kingdom is broken up, and you get the four generals that divide the kingdom. These were Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Now what ended up happening is Seleucus eventually conquers Lysimachus and Cassander, and Ptolemy holds court down in Egypt. And 
here's the importance of these four kingdoms. At this point, we see the, starting in verse 5, which we see the first reference to the king of the south. And then in verse 6, the king of the north is mentioned. The king of the south and the king of the north originally, the king of the south was Ptolemy, and the king of the north was Seleucus. These were literal people with literal kingdoms. And Seleucus basically controlled the area of Palestine all the way up into Macedonia. And, and this is modern-day Greece over here. This is modern-day Israel. And here's modern-day Egypt where Ptolemy was in control. So what ends up happening in the rest of Daniel 11 is you have this epic struggle between the king of the north and the king of the south. And um, the history is pretty straightforward. You have Ptolemy and Seleucus going against each other, then their descendants go against each other. And you, you can go down through the sequence of events, and eventually um, some history that some of us maybe learned about in school, you, you have characters such as Cleopatra and Mark Antony um, who show up. Um, you have Caesar Augustus, you have um, Tiberius Caesar, you have Julius Caesar. And there's a brief mention of the Prince of the Covenant in verse 22. And as I said, you know, the, verse, the first 30 verses aren't necessarily the most... I mean, they're important and they're in the Bible for a reason, but they're just setting the table for us to understand history so that we can understand the time of the end. So what ends up happening then is you have... Um, this kingdom, or these, these guys are wiped out. So I'll just take them off the board. So Seleucus has control of here. And then you have Seleucus going against Ptolemy. And then eventually, um, actually, um, Cleopatra and Mark Antony then eventually team up together. They become the king of the south. And then you had, um, you eventually have um, Julius Caesar who becomes king of the north. Now, what happened, of course, in the sequence of events, and I'm not going to, I'm not really going into the depth that I've done in other studies in Daniel 11. So eventually Julius Caesar and, and pagan Rome conquer the kingdom of Seleucus and the king of the north. So then what happens is, um, instead of the kingdom of Seleucus being the king of the north, it's now pagan Rome who actually... And Rome, Italy is all the way over here. I can't draw Italy, but I'm, this will have to work. But, um, so you have pagan Rome that conquers all this area. And so now you have pagan Rome. And because they've conquered the territory of the previous king of the north, which was the kingdom of Seleucus, now pagan Rome is the king of the north. And it's referred to as the king of the north in the rest of Daniel chapter 11. And you have Egypt, it was Ptolemy, and then it becomes Mark Antony and Cleopatra. They are the king of the south. Now, if you look at this just on a, you know, on a map, obviously this is north with respect to south, but one of the reasons why this is called king of the north and this is king of the south is because this is with respect to Jerusalem or where God's people are at. So the king of the north comes from North of Jerusalem, king of the south comes up from below Jerusalem. So that, that's sort of an interesting point. And up through verse 30, you have this struggle between 
Rome and Egypt, or before that it was um, Seleucus and Ptolemy. And even within, you know, in the first 30 verses, there's, there's some interesting prophecies. There's even a time prophecy at the end of verse 24 that predicts um, 360 years um, of pagan Rome occupying or being the leading world power. But, and that was from 31 B.C. to um, 330 A.D. And in 330 A.D., Rome moved to Constantinople. Um, so all of those things are in there. And I'm going through that kind of fast, but you can go back through the handout. You can look at the information in Daniel and Revelation because really the important part is after verse 30. But then, And I mentioned this in my sermon a couple of weeks ago about the ships of Chittim. And if you look at that, um, the ships of Chittim were in t- the land of Tyre. And the reference for that that proves that is Isaiah chapter 23, verse 1. And that's in the handout. Carthage was the center of Tyre, which is where the ships of Chittim launched from. And why is this important? Well, this is where Genseric the Vandal waged war against the Western Roman Empire. And he was the one that helped to... to lead the charge that led to the, to the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 A.D. And now you may ask yourself the question, you may have been asking yourselves the question a couple of weeks ago, what's the big deal about verse 30 in 476 A.D.? Why does that matter? Well, it matters because it gives us the sequence of events to where we are in the prophecy of Daniel 11. So you get to Daniel chapter 11, verse 30, and now you are in... 476 A.D. in the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And interestingly enough, Daniel 11 just basically goes in chronological order. It does jump back a little bit um, in verses 24 through 26, I believe. So we come all the way down to the fall of the Western Roman Empire in verse 30. And um, how, how am I doing? Am I losing you? Or are you following me? Or Okay, I don't... Okay. So, anyone not getting it? I don't want to go too fast. So, the, the key point so far is that we are following the... Another way of looking at it is that we are following the kingdoms of the, the image in Daniel chapter 2 minus the head of gold. We're following the sequence of kingdoms in Daniel 7 or 8. But Daniel chapter 11 is giving us the details of who these kings were and how they would rise to power. And remember, this prophecy was given before it ever happened. So um, that's the amazing thing about this prophecy. In my microscopic detail, it talks about how Julius Caesar would be attacked by his own people, how the Roman Senate basically murdered him, and Caesar Augustus was raised up in his place. I'm, I'm maybe jumping around a little bit, but it talks about um, some ri- someone rising up after Caesar Augustus, who was a vile person, that was Tiberius Caesar, and history refers to him as being a vile person. So anyway, we get to the end of verse 30, all the way down to the end of the pagan Roman Empire, who is the king of the north. Now remember, we have the king of the north and we have the king of the south, and all of a sudden, in 476 AD, the Western Roman Empire collapses, which begs the question, okay, the pagan Roman Empire has collapsed, and that is the king of the north. So if the Western Roman Empire has lost its dominance, it's no longer the leading world empire, 
who then would succeed the king of the north, or who would, who would succeed pagan Rome as king of the north? Because if you look at the rest of Daniel chapter 11, there are, there are remain references to the king of the north. Now, verse 30 and verse 31 are sort of the transitioning point to helping us understand who the king of the north is. And one of the reasons why I looked at Daniel chapter 8 earlier and I went through the sequence of the kingdoms of the ram, the he-goat, the little horn, and then the daily and the transgression of desolation and all that is because that's a crucial piece of information to help us understand who the king of the north becomes in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 8, we just see that you have the little horn in its pagan Rome element. You have the little horn in its papal Rome element. But who is the king of the north in Daniel chapter 11? So, actually we just had some people come in. Can you... So Daniel chapter 11, verse 31 is really the key transitioning point. And as I was saying, you know, I read this evangelical scholar on, on Google and he continues with this literal application of, um, of, the, of, of the prophecy and makes everything literal Israel and the, the destruction of Jerusalem and all of those things. But it, that's not really what is being pointed out here in Daniel chapter 11. So Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, let me read you this verse, and then I'm going to go back to Daniel chapter 8 to show you the similarity so that we can understand this a little more clearly. So Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, says, And arms shall stand on his part. Well, whose part? That's the king of the north. So arms stand on the part of the king of the north, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. That's Daniel 11 verse 31. Now go back to Daniel chapter 8. And let's read verses 11 and 12. Actually 11 through 13. It says, Yea, he, the, the little horn, magnified himself even to the prince of the host and by him the daily was taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down and an host or an army was given him against the daily by reason of transgression and it cast down the truth to the ground and it practiced and prospered then I heard one saint speaking and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake how long the vision concerning the daily and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot do you see the similar elements in Daniel chapter 11 verse 31 and Daniel 8 11 through verse 13 Daniel 11:31 and Daniel 8:11-13 you have an army standing up on the part of in Daniel 11 it's the king of the north but in Daniel chapter 8 it's the little horn. Now remember in Daniel chapter 8 you're having a transition from pagan to papal Rome in the little horn. The little horn in Daniel chapter 8 first is pagan and then becomes papal Rome. Daniel chapter 11, you have arms standing on the part of the king of the north. Notice that it says they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength. Remember in Daniel 8, it says the sanctuary and the host are trodden underfoot. It says they shall take away the daily. That's clearly in Daniel chapter 8. And it says they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. In Daniel chapter 8, you have the transgression of desolation that gives the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. It's the same thing. So you have in Daniel chapter 8, you have in Daniel chapter 11, the same sequence of events. And interestingly enough, the 
transition from pagan to papal Rome happens in the same place in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11. The transition point of the little horn in Daniel chapter 8 from pagan to papal Rome is when Clovis, or when it says a host was given him by reason of transgression, that's Clovis's army. And in Daniel chapter 11, it says, arms shall stand on his part. That's an army standing on the part of the king of the north, which is Rome. Now, in Daniel chapter 11, verse 30, we clearly see that you have the fall of the the pagan Western Roman Empire. So in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, when it talks about arms standing on the part of the king of the north, and then you see that it it attacks God's sanctuary, the daily is taken away, and and those entities, that's the same thing as Daniel chapter 8. Clearly in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, this is a transition point because Daniel chapter 11, verse 30 talks about pagan Rome being destroyed by Genseric the Vandal. That's clear. Historically, we know that. And then verse 31, now we have a new power that's assuming the part of the king of the north. And it makes, it, it's helpful to understand because in Daniel chapter 8, you have the little horn and the little horn is first pagan and then it becomes papal. So the transition point, now we know in, when we look back at Daniel chapter 8 is, okay, the transition point in Daniel chapter 8 from pagan to papal Rome is going to be the same place that you have a transition in Daniel chapter 11. And that transition happens when you have an army that stands on the part of the king of the north, and with that army they pollute God's sanctuary, they take away the daily, and they place the abomination that maketh desolate. So historically, in verse 30, that's 476 A.D., and historically, in verse 31, this is 508 A.D. Now, what happened in 508 A.D.? 508 A.D., Papal Rome gives out a decree declaring Clovis to be the protector of Papal Rome. Now, why is this significant? Because this is the first time that you have an alliance between the civil power and the religious power. And that's why at the end of the verse it says they place the abomination that maketh desolate. And I didn't really make that clear in my sermon two weeks ago, but this is actually a different example of the abomination of desolation than the end time Sunday law at the end of Daniel 11. The abomination of desolation in Daniel 11.31 is Clovis and the papacy making an alliance combining civil and religious power. That's an abomination to God. Um, spiritual fornication is another way of describing it. But this is 508 A.D. So with the civil power of Clovis combined with the religious power of Rome, that combination enabled the papacy to rise to preeminence and to knock out the few remaining pagan kingdoms that were standing in its way so that by 538 Justinian could give a decree declaring... um, the, the Pope to be the, um, the, the leader of Rome and, and basically Rome then assumed, the papacy assumed all of the civil power within the Roman Empire. So now you have in 508 a transition of the king of the north from pagan to papal Rome just as in Daniel chapter 8 you have a transition in the little horn from pagan to papal Rome. So we have the same sequence of events. And I don't have time to comment too much about the daily, although I do believe it's paganism. And the reason why I 
say that, and I guess I'll take a little tangent here. If you disagree with me, you can talk to me afterwards. Don't talk to me now. Um, The reason I say that is because you have a clear starting point for the daily being taken away, and that's 508 AD. Now, if someone can give me clear evidence of what happened in 508 that took away Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, I'll be happy to reconsider my position. But Hebrews 7.25 says he ever liveth to make intercession for us. So that doesn't make sense to me that he would ever live to make intercession, but then in 508 his ministry would be taken away. So that's just a quick aside. Um, Ellen White says it's not a testing point, so don't make it a salvational issue. But if you understand it more clearly, it helps you to understand the sequence of kingdoms and events and how God works through his people and all that more clearly. So 508 AD fits much better with paganism being taken out of the way so that the papacy could set up its empire than to say that Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary was taken away in 508. Because there's clearly a starting point. Now why do I say there's a starting point? Because if you go to Daniel chapter 12 verse 11 which is basically the same line of thought. Daniel 12, verse 11, it says, From the time that the daily shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Verse 12, Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. So the beginning point of the 1290 and the 1335 is 508, and that's associated with the daily being taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate being set up. And that's Clovis using the civil power of his army to defend the religious entity of the papacy. So that's a key point. I spent a lot of time on verse 31 because Daniel 11 verse 31 is the crucial transition point um, in history from the supremacy of pagan Rome to papal Rome. And once you understand that from verse 31 on through the rest of Daniel 11 that the papacy is the king of the north, That's going to help you understand better the sequence of events that will prepare us for the close of probation when Michael stands up in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And it's funny to me, you know, here's one disclaimer about this book by Uriah Smith. He called Turkey the king of the north. Why he did that boggles my mind because he was such a bright person. That's really the only major problem I have with his book. Other than that, the details, especially through verse 30, are good in Daniel 11. So verse 31, you have arms standing on the part of the king of the north, which is the papacy. And, of course, the papacy does pollute God's sanctuary. They just don't take away Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. But with their false system of forgiveness of sins through the priest and confession and all that, they clearly did pollute God's sanctuary, but they never took Christ's ministry away because there was always people who were faithful to God during that time. Now... In verse 32 um, through verse 40, I really don't have much in the handout about that just because it's pretty straightforward and one of these days I'll take the time to put the detail in there. But basically verses um, 31 through 40 take you from 508 to 1798. And you see, especially like in... In verse 33, you see the element of persecution. You see the element of God's people falling by the sword, by flame, by captivity, and by spoil, which is exactly how the papacy persecuted God's people. They would, I think Stephen Board mentioned this when he was here, that, that the papacy would go out and tell people, go kill 
those Christians, and if you kill them, you get their property. So that's spoil. And, of course, they would burn them at the stake. They would kill them. They'd slaughter them. You have the St. Bartholomew Massacre where a trader went through the street and would point out the the houses of the, the faithful Protestants, and they were slaughtered. So it was really a brutal time. And, and, and don't believe the papacy when they apologize for that time because they're going to do the same thing again. Um, and verse 34 talks about them falling. They're helped with a little help. That, I believe, is the Protestant Reformation. Um, all the way down, you see the king magnifying himself above every god. Remember Daniel 7:25, he shall speak great words against the Most High. Um, and all down through here, I realize I'm skipping a lot of great stuff in here, but it's not really... Actually, verse 35 was one thing I did want to point out. Notice verse 35, it says, Some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. Now, this is a crucial verse. Notice that the persecution of God's people by the papacy in Daniel chapter 11 goes till what time period? It says the time of the end. Now, I heard 1798, and that's the correct answer, but this is a crucial point. We can say, yeah, we know the time of the end is 1798, but if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, and this is this little horn power that's the papacy, and Daniel chapter 7 makes a clearer distinction where the little horn is only the papacy in Daniel chapter 7, whereas in Daniel chapter 8 it's first pagan, then papal Rome. In Daniel chapter 7, here we see that the little horn, in verse 25, it says, He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. This is the persecution of God's people, just as we've seen here in Daniel 11. And it says, He shall think to change times and law. That's changing the Sabbath to Sunday. And notice how, how long God's saints are worn out or given into the hand of this little horn papacy, which is also the king of the north, it says, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times in the dividing of time. That's the 1260 years. That's the prophecy from 538 to 1798. So in Daniel chapter 7, we understand that the persecution of God's people will continue until the end of the 1260 days. But in Daniel chapter 11, we're told that the persecution will last until the time of the end. So that's a nice connection to show that the persecution of God's people ends at the 1260, which is the same as the end, uh, which is the same as the time of the end, which is clearly 1798, because that's when the 1260 end. So that's a key point, Daniel 11:35. And this is where things get interesting to me because verses 40 through 45 are the area of this prophecy that describes where we are now. And if you look at Daniel chapter 11 and you realize that God has accurately predicted with precise detail the rise of each of the individual... He'll mention, he mentions several individual kings and queens and so forth within the king of the north, the king of the south, through the transition to, during the time of Christ, to, and you have pagan Rome, then to papal Rome, all of that, and you have the, the time of the, the dark ages where the persecution of God's people and all of that, and you realize that this prophecy still has some precise detail unfulfilled, that should make you excited and interested to see what's behind perhaps the, 
the veil in verses 40 through 45. Now, verse 40 is, the first part is pretty easy to understand. Notice verse 40, it says, And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. Who's him? That's the king of the north. So the time of the end, we have the king of the south pushing at the king of the north. Well, first of all, what year is the time of the end? 1798. What happened in 1798 that caused the king of the south to push at the king of the north? Right, so you have France, atheistic France, no less, representing the, the principles of the king of the south of Egypt. Now you see that you have s- symbolism um, in Daniel 11. You've, we've made a transition from... Um, in some respects, absolutely literal to somewhat symbolic, but clearly France was a literal kingdom. So there's still an element of literalism in Daniel 11, but it's more symbolic now. So it's kind of a, um, you know, someone who maybe has never studied prophecy before could say, well, how can you say it's literal Egypt, but now you have something other than Egypt that's the king of the south, but it's still a kingdom, but it's not really Egypt. It's just something that comes with time, with understanding how God gives prophecy. As you switch to more end-time prophecy, God uses more um, symbolic language to describe things. So anyway, you have Daniel 11.40, the king of the south, pushing at the king of the north. So this is a crucial piece of information, because remember what, what God said to Daniel. Understand Daniel, Daniel 8.17, that the vision is for the time of the end. So God wanted Daniel to understand especially what what would happen from 1798 till the end of time. And that's where Daniel 11 verse 40 begins. So if Daniel 11 verse 40 is the starting point to the time of the end, which is what God wanted Daniel to understand, how crucial do you think verse 40 and onward is for us to understand? This is very important for us to understand. This is critical. So you have 1798, and in Revelation 13, this is the deadly wound. It's king of the south pushing at the king of the north. And this is where, after that, um, I haven't heard a lot. I know there's a few people that talk about these verses, but there's not very many. There really aren't. There's a few people that are studying these verses. But there's not as many as I wished we're studying these verses. So I've made an attempt. And it's my own study. I haven't really gone off of the words of anyone else per se, other than just the principles of biblical hermeneutics that are consistent with the rest of the Bible and what Ellen White has to say. And I did think that Stephen Board did a fine job using um, the chapters of the Great Controversy and working his way backward to kind of explain some of the details. So if you haven't heard his sermon, go to Audioverse and listen to that. That's a very excellent message. But I'm not going to do that today. I'm actually going to take a look at the detail of these verses and realize that I'm a human being with no, you know, greater insight into any of these things than any of the rest of you. But I have made an attempt at studying verses 40 through 45. And, you know, the pioneers, they would look at history and they would make... Um, they would look at the prophecies, they would look at the Bible, and they would piece together from history and from prophecy what things represented. And that's, going, that's my attempt here. And Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, it says, At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. That's 1798. 
Now, we know from Revelation 13 that after the deadly wound, the, the papacy makes a comeback and all the world wonders after the beast. But we see in verse 40 how the papacy, or the king of the north, makes its comeback. In verse 40 it says, And the king of the north shall come against him, who's him, that's the king of the south, like a whirlwind, so that's very quickly, with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. So the first thing that I've done, and I have, and try not to look too far ahead in the handout or you're going to ruin it for yourself, and you may not agree with anything in here, I don't know. But um, in Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, so the first thing to look at is the entity of the chariots, horsemen, and many ships. And actually what I should have mentioned is that obviously atheistic France and the King of the South continued after 1798 and it continued on in the principles of communism, Marxism, socialism. And um, some of you may not like what I'm going to say next, but um, I hope I don't offend anyone, but sorry, but the Democratic Party has a lot of these principles in their party platform. Now, before you say, yay, I'm a Republican, guess what? The Republicans are part of the King of the North. So, If you're part of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, you're either in the King of the North or the King of the South, and they're both going to be destroyed. So, I guess I've made everyone mad. I don't know. Um, but follow the counsel of inspiration. Ellen White says to avoid politics like the plague. And as God's people, we have better things to be interested in than political interests of this world. Um, so, I made my little speech there, sorry. Um, so you have, here's the key point. So the king of the north makes a comeback against the king of the south with these three entities. It comes with chariots, horsemen, and ships. Now, what I tried to do as I looked through, I went through Strong's Concordance and looked at all the examples of any time in the Bible where chariots and horsemen are used together um, to see what that means throughout Scripture. And, and without fail, when chariots and horsemen are placed together, it's indicating an army or a military. So, and one of the examples is Second Corinthians 6.15. There's, there's many other examples. But this suggests that the king of the north of the papacy makes a comeback against the king of the south, represented by communism and socialism and other things, um, with military power. But it's not the only thing that the king of the north comes back against the king of the south with. It also comes back with many ships. Now, interestingly enough, now if you look in Second Chronicles 9.21 and Proverbs 31.14, um, those two verses connect ships with riches and merchandise. And if you look in Revelation 18, which is talking about Babylon, who is also the king of the north or the papacy or the little horn, we see that Revelation 18 connects Babylon with the merchants of the earth who are described as shipmasters and companies with ships and sailors who were made rich by Babylon. So, in essence, what you have here is you have the, the ships then symbolically would represent financial strength or economic power. So, you have a military and an economic power, or you, the entities of 
money or finances and military, these are the two things that the king of the north uses to make a comeback against the king of the south. Now, if you look at, down through history from 1798 till the present, when has the Vatican ever amassed a great army that comes out of the Vatican and has gone out and destroyed the world? I, I can't think of a time. I mean, I've been to the Vatican, and it's um, a very small place um, surrounded by the city of Rome and the country of Italy. It's really not much to speak of when it comes to an actual geographical military power. But you have to think about you have to think about history and how the papacy has been able to use its political influence to, in effect, amass a military and political power, even though in and of itself it is not that power, so to speak. Well, the thing that I went back to, um, looking through history, and some of you probably remember this. How many of you have, and this, sorry, I, I couldn't blow this up any bigger, but how many of you have ever read this article in Time magazine called The Holy Alliance? And this was written by Carl Bernstein, and he is a pretty good investigative journalist. He and Bob Woodward were the, were the two guys who broke Watergate. And he actually was the one who also uncovered this secret alliance between Reagan and John Paul II. So he's actually a very good journalist. He may not be a very good Christian, if at all. But, you know, people of the world can be good historians and good reporters, and we can get good information from them. And that's what I think he has provided for God's people with this article. If you read this article, and you can find it by just typing in Google, you can type in Reagan and Holy Alliance or Time, and you'll get this article. And I've printed it off here. It's like a 13-page article. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. But I've summarized the key points in the handout. And one of the key points in this article, and of course, historically, Reagan began his presidency in 1981 after defeating Jimmy Carter in 1980. But in this 12-page article, Reagan is quoted as saying, quote, one of the earliest goals of my presidency is to recognize the Vatican as a state and to make them an ally. Um, at least four of Reagan's key cabinet members were Catholics. And Reagan and Pope John Paul II met for the first time June 7, 1982. And in this meeting where everyone thought they were talking about the situation in the Middle East and how to keep Israel a safe place, they actually were talking about developing a strategy to, strategy to take down communist Soviet Union by assisting the Solidarity Movement led by Lech Walesa. Some of you may remember him. And here's how they did it. They provided finances together as well as infrastructure. And through the political connections of the papacy, the, the archbishops and bishops and all of those guys, the cardinals, they were in contact with the people on the ground in Poland and the United States provided the money. So you have the money from the United States. You have the political know-how, knowing what's going on the ground from the papacy there in Europe. And eventually, um, L'Equilessa and the Solidarity Movement overcame the communist government through the assistance of the papacy and the United States. And it was from Poland and Eastern Europe. That was the birthplace, if you will, of the 
1980s revolution that ended in the fall of the Berlin Wall. And of course, we remember Reagan's famous speech where he says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And we all remember that, and that came down in 1989. So, um, and of course, one of the other things that happened, and I don't, I'm not sure that this talks about this in the Holy Alliance article, but one of the other things that the United States did to assist the papacy in destroying communism, because of course communism was not helpful to the papacy in trying to be dominant in Europe. I mean, you had the, the Russian Orthodox Church, which was in direct competition with the papacy, so that wasn't helpful to the papacy. So one of the things the United States did to bring down the Soviet Union financially was Star Wars. And how many of you remember hearing about Star Wars? So what Reagan did was he poured possibly trillions of dollars, I don't know how much, into this Star Wars project, which created an arms race between the Soviet Union and the United States. And so now you have here more of the military component of the United States assistance. The United States is now flexing its military muscle for the benefit of the papacy. You have, it's, it flexed its financial power to help set up the solidarity movement in Poland. Now it's flexing its military and financial strength by spending trillions of dollars on Star Wars. And, of course, the Soviet Union says, hey, we have to keep up. We can't get behind in this nuclear arms race with the United States. And so they started pouring lots of money. And what ended up happening is um, that led to the financial collapse of the Soviet Union. And so they weren't able to hold off this power. And, and Reagan, later on after his presidency, he said, with the, with the help of Protestant America, I teamed up with Catholic Europe to bring down communist Soviet Union. And this, I believe is a direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy. You may or may not agree with me. This is just my study. But what I see happening in Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, is you have the king of the north using military and economic power with the assistance of the United States. And it says, He shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. So with the assistance of the United States, the Soviet Union was was overthrown and overtaken by the king of the north. In verse 41, it says, He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. Now, this is a potentially hot-button topic, too. What's the glorious land? I'm not going to answer that question right now, um, just so we can come back to that. But one thing that's clear is that if you look earlier in Daniel chapter 11 when it talks about the glorious land, that's clearly talking about Palestine. Um, so the glorious land in um, Daniel chapter 11 earlier on, the glorious land equals Palestine. And it was the glorious land, of course, it was the promised land, it was the land of promise where the land flowing with milk and honey. And this is the land where God's people... Resided. Now, it would only make sense that the glorious land would not be literal Israel at the end of time. Because the king of the south that pushed at the king of the north um, was not literal Egypt, but it had the same principles of Egypt. So, 
you have the glorious land. It's probably a more symbolic representation, and we'll talk about that more as we come down further through the chapter, just so we have a... I'll come back to the glorious land, but for now, I'll just leave that there hanging. But I don't... I just will... I will say that I don't believe it's literal Israel. So, um, just moving on here. So in verse 41, it talks about how Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon escape out of the hand of this king of the north. Now, historically, who were Edom, Moab, and Ammon? Right, so Edom, Moab, and Ammon were relatives of God's people. The Edomites came from the line of Esau, and Moab and Ammon were the two illegitimate children of, of Lot's two daughters. You remember the story. So they're related to God's people. Of course, the Edomites were, would be like basically, they're the brothers of Jacob, who are the Israelites. And then, so they become cousins, of course, first cousins. And then you have Moab and Ammon, they're the... They're the sons of Lot, which would make them the nephews of Abraham. So pretty close connection to God's people, the children of Israel. And if you look at the map, they, I'm not going to write it all out, but they actually were to the east. Their, their territory was right over here to the east. So it gives you the idea as the king of the north at the end of time after 1798 he comes through, he passes through the countries, he enters into the glorious land. These people off to the east here, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, they escape out of his hand. Now, if you look at Isaiah chapter 11, there's an interesting prophecy that includes these people. So this gives an interesting thought as to who these people could be. And Isaiah 11 is a... is the great prophecy that talks about the remnant of God's people being recovered the second time. And you have in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, you talk, it, there, there's the description of God's holy mountain. Verse 10, it says, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse which will stand for an ensign of the people. That's the Sabbath. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. That's God's Sabbath rest that you can study about in Hebrews 4. And in verse 11 it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. And it tells you where they come from. In verse 12 it says, He shall set up an ensign for the nations. This is clearly the Sabbath. And shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And you go on. In verse 14 it says, But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines towards the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. So what this suggests here, here you have Edom, Moab, and Ammon. This suggests that these are people, now they're relatives of God's people, that respond to the Sabbath message at the end of time. They're people that are related to us. So my best guess is that these are people who profess the name of Christ but don't have a full knowledge of all the truth. And the the key point that is brought out here in Isaiah 11 is that this ensign that is lifted up, it's the Sabbath. So you have the Sabbath message that these relatives of God's people respond to. They've been following God as best they could, and then finally they hear the Sabbath message, and they say, hey, that's it. That's the message. And so these people escape out of the hand of the king of the north, who is trying to make all the world receive the mark of the beast, which is Sunday worship. 
So that's my best guess as to the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. And if you read the end of verse 16 of Isaiah 11, I always like this verse. It says, And there shall be an highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. So there's that glorious promise that we will make it to the promised land one of these days, just as God's people did the first time. And sad to say, I think we've chosen the same path that they did to take the detour to get to Canaan. So that's just an aside, thrown in for extra measure. Um, So that takes us through the end of 41. Now, basically, if you've noticed here, the beginning of verse 40 was 1798. The end of verse 40, as best as I can tell, didn't really begin to reach its fulfillment until 1980. So in Daniel chapter 11, you have between 1798 and 1980, not a whole lot going on. Which, in many respects, is dependent on God's people so that he can move forward with the next component here. We haven't reached a time where the people of other faiths who profess the name of Christ are coming in like droves into our church as we know they will someday. Then verse 42, it says, He shall also stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. And then notice verse 43, But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. Now, here's, here's the key point. So notice geographically, and I realize I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but notice geographically where the king of the north has come now. So he comes down from the north, at the end of time, so this is like a repetition of history, comes down from the north, comes down through the glorious land, and he ends up passing through Egypt, which was the king of the south, and Libya and Ethiopia are over here. So one of the things I didn't have time to talk about was that one of the key components that the papacy conquers, or the king of the north conquers in these kingdoms of Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia, which really they were all part of the kingdom of Ptolemy or the king of the south. The thing that that the king of the north conquers in these kingdoms is their riches. So it's the riches of, you know, the United States, the, the part of the United States that doesn't really believe in God, the part of the world that wants to just do whatever they want and, and have their religious liberty, I mean, have their liberties to do whatever they want. And of course, we believe in, in freedom of speech and all the other liberties that we have in this country, but there are people who abuse those liberties, unfortunately. But anyway, the, the papacy conquers the, the part of the world described as Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia, which have the riches of this world. So what in essence has happened here is you've had, you have the, the king of the north, and in the time of Christ, this was basically the, the then-known world. Of course, you did have Persia and Babylon off over here, but this was essentially the whole world in their time. And symbolically speaking, in Daniel chapter 11, um, the king of the north comes through the glorious land. He goes down to Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia. And by the time he gets down here, he's basically conquered almost the whole world. And Revelation 13 says all the world wandered after the beast, except for a faithful few in the remnant. Sure. 
So Revelation 13 and Daniel 11, especially verses 40 through 45, go very clearly together. It's just that most Adventists understand Revelation 13 pretty well, but when it comes to Daniel 11, that's where not as much is known. But this does make sense to me that you have... um, Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia. And so that's where the king of the north ends up. Now, the reason why this is important, and remember we set this all up initially when I had all those kingdoms up there like Cassandra, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. That was all just set up so that we would understand who the king of the north and the king of the south are at the end of time. And it would also help us to understand who God's people are and what their role is at the end of time. So we get through... Verse 43, and I know I talked about this two weeks ago. Um, It says, Tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. Now, the king of the north is here. He gets tidings out of the... um, So he's come all the way down and now he's in the land of the king of the south. So when he gets down here and he's basically conquered the whole world, then he hears tidings out of the north and east that trouble him. And so I'm going to spend a little bit more time. I, you know, I realize that you probably know the basics, but I'm going to give you a little bit more evidence to show what I was saying a few weeks ago. So tidings out of the east and out of the north trouble him. And it says, therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. So let's go to a very familiar verse I didn't have time to go to two weeks ago. Revelation twelve seventeen. <clears throat> Revelation twelve seventeen says, And the dragon was wroth with a woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So here you have a similar scenario. You have God's commandment-keeping people, the remnant of God's seed, and the dragon is wroth with the woman and goes to make war with the remnant of her seed. Now, we know that the dragon is Satan, but in Revelation chapter 13, it says that the dragon gave his power, his seat, and great authority to the papacy. Who, and the papacy is also the king of the north. So what you have here in Daniel chapter 11, verse 44, you have a message coming out of the east and north from where the king of the north is. That message happens to be coming from the vicinity of Jerusalem. You could say, well, it's coming from Palestine. But I'll tell you why I believe it's coming from Jerusalem in a minute. And the same response in Revelation 12, 17 he goes forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. It's a response to a message that includes the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. So what you have here, if, if the king of the north represents the papacy and a message is making, it's making the papacy furious, it would only make sense that this message is coming from a group of people that are um, on God's side, given the fact that, that the dragon has given his power, his seat, and authority to the papacy or the king of the north. So here's a message coming from the vicinity of God's people, you could say in Palestine or the glorious land or Jerusalem, somewhere in there. And so the response by the papacy is to go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. Now, 
the other key point is notice it says tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. The other place in scripture that talks about a message coming from the east in an apocalyptic sense is found in the is found in the book of Revelation chapter 7 and in Revelation chapter 7 verse 1 you see the four angels holding the four corners of the earth and the four winds of the earth and the idea that that gives you is that once the four angels let go then something significant will happen well we see what happens after the four winds are unleashed it's in verse 2 it says and I saw another angel ascending from the east so here you have a message at the very end of time that is set forth just as the four winds of strife are let out upon the earth. And this message coming from the east is a message that has the seal of the living God. And with this message, it seals the servants of God, of God in their foreheads. And as you study on down, the people that are sealed are the 144,000. So, in Revelation chapter 7, you have a message coming from the east. It's the seal of the living God. And this message seals the 144,000. And in, Revelation, in Daniel chapter 11, we see that the king of the north goes forth to destroy and to make away many, just as the dragon does in Revelation 12, 17. So it only makes sense that this sealing message would have the component of obedience or the Ten Commandments in it. Now, I realize that I flew through this quickly last time and said that the sealing message is the Sabbath message, and we have verses, of course, that can prove that. But you can see in Daniel chapter 11:44 the same component of the dragon being wroth with a woman in Revelation 12:17, and the, the commandments of God, all of those things coming together. So a commandment message, a message that reminds people of God's commandments, specifically the, the commandment in which you would receive the seal of the living God. And that's, of course, the fourth commandment. And the verses to prove that the Sabbath is the seal of God is Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 12 and 20, where God says that it will be a sign between me and you forever. So you, well, you say, well, that says it's a sign, but it doesn't say that it's a seal. But in Romans chapter 4, verse 11, that verse shows us that a sign and a seal can be one and the same. So between Ezekiel 20, verses 12 and 20, Romans chapter 4, verse 11, we see that the sign and a seal are one and the same and that the Sabbath is a sign between God's people forever. So it would only make sense that at the end of time, a message having the seal of the living God would be the same seal or sign that God set with his people way back that he said it's a sign or a seal between you and me forever. And of course, it only makes sense that a Sabbath message, a, ma a message that brings prominence to the Ten Commandments, and especially the Fourth Commandment, which is the Sabbath, which is the seal of the living God, would especially make the King of the North furious. And the reason why is because in Daniel chapter 7.25, it says he shall think to change times and laws, and with that change of times and laws, he persecuted God's people during the Dark Ages, or the 1260 years. And we read about that in Daniel chapter 11. And as the Sabbath message again at the end of time comes to prominence, 
the same power of persecution that was prominent during the Dark Ages will also rise again to prominence. So a message from the East having the seal of the living God, these tidings that come from a place. Now this is why I believe that the tidings from the East and North come from Jerusalem. Here's why. This message is a sealing message. It has the Sabbath message in it. And if you study Ezekiel chapter 9, the, the place where God's people are sealed is inside the city of Jerusalem. So inside the city of Jerusalem is where a mark is set upon the foreheads of those who sigh and cry um, for the abominations that are done in the midst of the land. And if you read Testimonies Volume 5, I believe it's pages 207 to 216, that's the chapter of the seal of God by Ellen White, and she clearly sets out that, that um, she talks about Ezekiel 9, she talks about God's people receiving the seal of the living God. So she uses Ezekiel 9 as, a, as an example of the seal of God at the end of time. And it just so happens that those who receive the seal of the living God are inside the city of Jerusalem. So it would only make sense that when the king of the north is way down here in Egypt and tidings from the east and the north come that trouble him, Jerusalem happens to be to the east and to the north of where he is in Daniel chapter 11. So Jerusalem is the remnant because it's the remnant church that keeps the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And it's the remnant who received the wrath of the dragon. It's the remnant who the king of the north tries to destroy and to make away. Many, or it says, where he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. That's the people inside the city of Jerusalem. So, I believe that the tidings out of the east and out of the north are coming from Jerusalem, which is representative of God's last day remnant church. Based on Ezekiel chapter 9 and the fact that Ellen White. In her in Testimonies, Volume Five, uses the the verses of Ezekiel nine to describe the, the sealing message um, at the end. So then you have verse forty-five. This is the end of Daniel eleven. So we've gotten basically we've hit all the highlights and we've gotten down to verse forty-five. And I know I talked about this as well. It says he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. And I pointed this out last time and I'll point it out again. That a better reading would be he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. That's the way the literal, if you look at the Textus Receptus and other translations, that's the way they translate verse 45. Because otherwise you would be, here's, here's what happens in verse 45. You have the king of the north planting the tabernacle of his palace. The tabernacle is a, the religious component of the papacy. The palace is the political component. And some people say, well, yeah, he plants it in the city of Jerusalem. I actually believe that God's people are spared um, because the tabernacle of, of, the, of his palace is a worldwide or global political religious entity that is set up at the end of time in response to this global sealing message, also known as the loud cry of Revelation 18, that goes to the whole world, lightens the earth with its glory. So the papacy has to respond with a global action, and their global action 
the, yeah, the global counterpart to the loud cry is the false system of worship where they set up the tabernacle of their palace. Now, to me, it makes no sense to say that this false system of worship is set up in God's people. Uh, I, don't, I don't see that. And with other translations saying that it's between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, then it makes more sense to say, okay, you have God's people set, separated out over here. You have this church state global counterpart to the global message coming from the small city of jerusalem and so you have god's people here you have this church state global counterpart and that divides the rest of the world from god's people and as you know from revelation seventeen fifteen, sea represents people so the mediterranean sea here in essence represents the whole world that's on the other side of the image to the beast where all the world wanders after the beast and then you have this small tiny group of people the remnant that the dragon is wroth with who goes to make war with the remnant of her seed these are the people that god uses to give the message to, at the end of time that lightens the earth with the glory of god and even though they may be small in number they have the power that to shake the world even though the papacy sets up its global counterpart and they have the whole world on their side, it's still this small group of people in the city of Jerusalem that end up winning the battle at the end. It's those who sigh and cry for the abominations of the land, those who give that loud cry warning message at the very end. Those are the ones who receive the seal of the living God. Those are the ones who become part of the 144,000. And after that, so, so we see this tabernacle of the palace set up between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Then it says, Yet he, the king of the north, shall come to his end, and none shall help him. And verse um, 1 of chapter 12, it says, At that time shall Michael stand up. And we've talked about this before. That's the close of probation. At the beginning of judgment, the father and the son, they sit down. Some translations say the court was seated, the books were open. The judgment was set, the books were open. The end of judgment, you come down to when this loud cry message goes to the whole world and the papacy sets up its global counterpart, Michael stands up and that's the end. That's the bottom line. Now, Michael stands up, that's the close of probation, and it says, Then there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. So those who are found written in the book, those are the ones who are giving that message from the east and north that trouble the papacy. Those are the, that's the remnant church who keeps the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. So it's a group of people who believe in all the commandments. They believe in God's end-time message. They aren't afraid of Ellen White. They uplift her to her proper role as a prophet in God's end-time church. Um, and those are the people that are found written in, in the book. And verse 2 of Daniel chapter 12 it describes the special resurrection just before Jesus comes, those who died in the third angel's message. Um, you go on through the end of Daniel chapter 12. And one other thing that I wanted to point out is that you may ask yourself the question well, how does God prepare his people, who are such a small group of people? to be the global counterpart to the rest of the world that wanders after the beast. Well, as we talked about in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11, and then we see here in Daniel chapter 12, as we've gone through all these prophecies, 
Every time that the daily is taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate is set up is mentioned, we get a little bit more information. So in Daniel chapter 8, the daily is taken away. You see the transgression of desolation, God's sanctuary trodden underfoot, and you have the prophecy of the 2300 days. Daniel chapter 11, you see the same entity again. And then Daniel chapter 12, we see that, hey, when the daily is taken away, the abomination that maketh desolate sets up. That's a clear starting point to the time prophecy of the 1290 and the 1335. And based on Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, we, we know historically, chronologically, that, that the 1290 and the 1335 begin in 508. So here's a key point. So Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, we know that we're in 508 AD with Clovis, the verse before that was the fall of the Western Roman Empire. But it takes you to the very end of Daniel to help you understand, well, what was the significance of Daniel 11.31? Why is 508 so important so that it's of any relevance to us as God's people now? Well, you ta- you, the 12.90 and the 13.35 both start from 508. So you do 508 to 12.90, that takes you to 17.98, the same as the 1260. But if you take the 508 and you add 1335, where does that take you to? It's not 1844, it's 1843. And you know what's interesting about that is God predicted that the Millerites would make a mistake in their understanding of the 2300-day prophecy. And you can read about that more in Habakkuk 2. It talks about wait for the vision, it will not tarry. And Ellen White talks about that being the true interpretation. But 1843, notice what Daniel chapter 12, verse 12 says. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. Because why, why would there be a special blessing on those who would come to the time period of 1843? Because truth be told, in 1798, the only thing that really happened was you had the Pope Pius VI taken captive by Berthier, and we're just getting over the French Revolution. And it wasn't until 1843 that the Millerite movement started to shake the world. And it was through the Millerite movement that the midnight cry and the first fulfillment of the parable of the ten virgins reached its fulfillment on October 22, 1844. And after that time, you have the Seventh-day Adventist movement come into existence. So taking you to 1843... So why, why is this prophecy of the daily being taken away and all that in Scripture ultimately is to point us to the time when God's people would rise up at the end of time to be the counterpart to the king of the north. You have the king of the north from the beginning of Daniel chapter 11, but the counterpart where God says to Daniel, I'm going to show you what's going to befall your people in the latter days. The repeat and enlarge comes out clearly with the daily being taken away. Daniel chapter 8, you get it. Daniel chapter 11, you're reminded. Finally, in Daniel chapter 12, the last of the repeat and enlarge says, the reason why I've mentioned the daily being taken away three times is so that you'll know the starting point of the 1290 and 1335, which will point you to the time when I will have my people that I will use at the end of time to be the global counterpart to the king of the north, which has been going since the beginning of this prophecy. So Daniel chapter 11, you have the king of the north from the very beginning, but it isn't until the very end of Daniel chapter 11 that you finally see that God's people, through his power, went out. And when I study the book of Daniel and Revelation, 
one of the key things to take home from the study is not just to be able to prove who the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites are. That's all nice and great. But the key point that each of us should really take home from the study today is who am I, why am I here, and what is my purpose for existence in the context of Bible prophecy? Because that's the whole reason that the Bible prophecies are given to us. I mean, these Bible prophecies weren't written for the papacy so that they would understand that they're the king of the north. I mean, maybe some of the leaders in their church know that and just do what they can to keep it hidden. I don't know. But these Bible prophecies are not written for them. They're written for us who is that small group of people inside the city of Jerusalem that are going to give that global message at the end of time. And as long as we keep floating along in Laodicea and maybe we'll study a, a, a Bible prophecy here or there and we think we might be able to prove the 2300 days but then we get pressed on it and then we're like, well, I'm not sure. I, I can't even tell you where in the Bible the, the decree goes forth to start the 2300 days. Well, I don't even know how we know it's 457. You need to know those things. And we as God's people were brought into existence after the time of 1843 and God pronounced a special blessing for those who would live in that time period and we of all people get to live at the end of the prophecy of Daniel 11 I mean Daniel lived at the very beginning of it I mean how how great could that be I mean he got to tell the story but we get to live the story and if we just study the Bible and say oh you know there's some beasts and some horns and yeah Babylon made of Persia Greece Rome that's great then Jesus will come someday. You lose the whole element of where do I fit in that puzzle? And why did God go to such a great effort to go through Cleopatra, Mark, Antony, Caesar, Augustus, Julius Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, um, the fall of the Western Roman Empire, Clovis, and all of that? The reason why is he wanted you to know who you are and where you are in the prophecy. And he expects his people after 1843, after 1844, to know their role in Bible prophecy. That's why we're here. We're not here just to be any other church. Um, I like, as my friend Dennis Preby has said before, before 1844, God used the Protestant churches to prepare people for death so they could meet Jesus the second time. But when he raised up the Advent movement, he didn't raise us up to prepare people for death. And that's what we've ended up doing for the last 163 years. He actually raised us up to prepare people for translation. That's our message. We have a translation message so that we can give the tidings out of the east and the north with latter rain power that infuriates the papacy and then Michael can stand up. We're not there yet. So somewhere between Daniel chapter 11 and Daniel chapter 12 verse 1, that's where we are. And the sobering thing to me is, as I said, in my, in my study, I see in verse 40 alone a break of between 1798 and 1982. And in many respects, that's dependent upon God's people to move things forward. And if we keep sitting back, we might have another break in the prophecy of Daniel 11 for another 200 years before God can move forward. I hope that doesn't happen. I mean, I do believe that Jesus is coming soon, but so did my great-great-great-grandparents, you know? 
And I do believe that this is a message that will lighten the earth with God's glory someday. I believe every word of this prophecy. But the thing that strikes me every time I study Bible prophecy is that all of the prophecies after 1844 are conditional upon God's people being ready for them to be fulfilled. Up until 1844, that was going to happen on time. The 2300 days happened on time. After 1844, there's no more time prophecy. So everything's event prophecy and it won't happen until God's people are ready for it to happen. So anyway, that was my purpose for going through a more in-depth look at Daniel chapter 11. I hope that you've found it informative, helpful, and as well, hopefully, inspirational so that we will realize that as God's people, we are the remnant church, that small group of people in Jerusalem that will give a message that will lighten the earth with God's glory someday soon. So that message, of course, if it is going to lighten the earth with God's glory, it needs to be 100% truth and not error and truth mixed together. That's why we study the Bible. And so that's why I believe we're here at Advent Hope. We're here to be a light on this campus. It's not, I mean, yeah, and I, I, love, I love all the Adventists in this area, but it, it is true that you can't go to too many places in this area where you can study the Bible like this to be challenged to be ready for Jesus to come. And hopefully... It's my prayer that we as a people will come up higher here at this group so that people will want to come and see what's happening over here, not just because they have friends here or they enjoy the social aspect, because they um, see a true picture of Christ that they've never seen before. And that's that's our challenge as God's people at the end of time, to make this end-time message attractive but not compromised. And so that's the message of Daniel chapter 11. It was written, it's the last prophecy in the book of Daniel. Therefore, I think it's probably the most important, especially with respect for us as God's people now, because we are living right in the middle of the very end of the prophecy of Daniel 11. So that should sort of excite you and sober you and make you realize, what am I doing? How come I'm watching TV for three hours a night and I'd never even heard of the King of the North before? You know, that's... That probably isn't true of any of you here, but if it is, ask God to help you put the things away in this world that are preventing you from having a deeper walk with him and a closer, a deeper knowledge and a closer walk. So let's be faithful. Let's go out and share this message to the world. And thank you, everyone, for coming out this afternoon and for spending a little bit of time. And I'll take questions after prayer. Is that all right? Let's have a closing prayer and then we can talk more. Father in heaven, thank you for this Sabbath. Thank you that we've had an opportunity to study the Bible. Thank you that you make things clear for us so that we can know where we are in the history of this earth. And I pray that we would do our part to fulfill the role that you've given us as God's remnant people in these last days. Help us to be faithful to the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. Help us to receive that latter rain power at the end of time that will lighten the earth with God's glory. And I pray that we would not be afraid of anything, but that we would just trust in you. And I pray that these prophecies would be fulfilled in our lifetime. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.